this evening, let me just start with a little preamble. Some messages you can preach from experience, or at least from what ex whatever experience you may have. Others, I am learning that you have to preach by faith, um, in expectation and probably in preparation of the experience you never hope to have, at least for this evening's message. But if and when it happens that we might be adequately positioned to handle that correctly, and today's teaching is one of those types of messages, because as you know, if you've been following, it's about persecution. And honestly, I can't say that I've been persecuted. If you want to go into a biblical understanding of what persecution is, truly, if we be honest, I don't think many of us can say that we've been persecuted the way uh, biblical characters have been persecuted. Maybe we've gone through some discomfort. Maybe we have received some silly remarks here and there. Met some inconsiderate people every now and then. But persecution, as the Bible describes it, not really. Lah, huh? And so as such, I feel totally inadequate each time I read passages like the one that we will explore this evening. In fact, when I realize what the scriptures refer to as sufferings, tribulations, persecutions, it really changed the way I look at the little inconveniences that I, inverted commas, suffer in my life and in my journey. And for sure, it's nothing compared to what the apostles went through and also our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. But as you know, with expository preaching, we can't escape any topic that the scripture would reveal to us. So this evening, we're going to talk about persecution. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for being with us. And we know, Lord, your word is going to convict us deeply once again this evening. And we ask, Lord, that you will give us hearts, ears, eyes, Lord, to receive and to learn, Lord, what you have for us through this evening's passage about persecution. Will you guide me, help me, Lord, enable me, Lord, to do justice to um, this passage that we'll unpack. And we pray that we can learn something from this that we can serve you even more fervently in the things of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lose to win is the title for this evening's teaching. Now you're looking at this and you're wondering, that's a rather odd title, right? Or not? And, and someone with a picture like a measuring tape. And uh, if you've been staring at this, you would know that this, uh, this title actually comes from a weight loss challenge. A weight loss challenge. You have to lose weight in order to win. And yet I was prompted to consider this title because as I was preparing, I said, Lord, I don't want just to have the word persecution as a title. It's like, you know, advertising, why so boring, right? Not creative. But as I looked at those three words, lose to win, I was asking myself, you know, with today's focus on big and bigger churches, how does the church of Jesus Christ measure up? We're looking at numbers, right? And each time pastors or ministers come together, they, will, you know, they tend to ask, how big is your church? How large is your congregation? So is the church today just big and huge? Are we fit or are we just fat? How does the church measure up? If we consider ourselves as members of the church, and we are the church, I think more 
importantly, we have to ask ourselves, how do I personally, how do I measure up? And it's been acknowledged time and again that the early church, the early church grew in an environment of persecution. The church and the body of Jesus Christ was actually raised up upon the blood of the martyrs. Now the word martyr in English comes from the Greek martus, which is translated witness. So when Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses, later on these guys would witness boldly that they know Jesus, that He's alive, that He's God, that He's King. And because of their witness, they were killed, they were persecuted, they were martyred. And so if you want to be a witness today, if you translate that work backwards to yourself, then if the witness gets witnessed, if the martus gets martyred, how many of you would like that? How does the church measure up? How do we measure up? Do we need to shed some weight, perhaps? Is the church truly fabulous or are we just flabulous? You know, I think we have to really consider this question. Do we need to lose to win? Let's go to tonight's passage. And you can find this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, but I would like us to read the entire section for context because we've been going through Beatitude one by one. Maybe we've forgotten the full picture of what Jesus was sharing or teaching in this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. So let me read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and all the way through to verse 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We have been traveling and climbing and trekking up Mount Makarios. And in this teaching, can I word it to say that we are reaching the summit of Mount Makarios. The question is, are we climbing up or are we going down? Are we moving towards the high ground of where Jesus wants us to be or are we moving from B1, B2, B3 and going all the way down? Because remember, the things and the ways of the kingdom, they are always upside down. So if you want to get up, you've got to go down. If you want to win, you have to 
lose. So we look at beatitude number eight. Is this the eighth beatitude? Is this the final beatitude? Or as we consider all the other beatitudes and we come to this evening's section, could this be a summary or a conclusion of the previous seven? So we can look at it as number eight is, is a separate one from the rest. Or we can consider this to say that if you acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy and we begin to live for the king, if you learn how to mourn and how to suffer well, when you live gently and meekly, when you yearn for God's righteousness, when we are merciful and long to be gracious to others, when we are wholly devoted to God with unadulterated worship and lives, when we seek to make peace with others, even when it seems impossible. The question is, if you live like this, the attitude one to seven, will everything go well with you? Will everything go well for you? That's what we like to believe, right? That, that's what the church tells us, right? That if we, if we live correctly, then everything is going to go okay. And popular church teaching will tell you, why don't you just name it and you can claim it? And you know, if you lift the kingdom, everything is going to be fine. But what does Jesus say? He says that if you live like that, get ready for persecution. I didn't hear any hallelujah. I didn't hear any amens. Am I reading scripture? Yes or no? In fact, Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Yes! And all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is Paul's doctrine. So he tells Timothy, will you follow my doctrine? Will you follow my lifestyle? If you desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, who wants to claim this promise? You know, we always want to claim promises, right? This is a good one. Why don't you underline it, bold it, highlight it, stick it in front of your bumper sticker. Okay, bumper sticker is behind. I got it all wrong. Put it on a fridge magnet. Did anyone copy this and post on Facebook? Not one of those Instagrammable type scripture, right? But it's a promise, yes. And the question is, I suppose, in other words, if I have not experienced persecution, it can only mean one of two things. Number one, it's coming soon. Or number two, I'm not living godly in Christ Jesus. Very sobering, right? Very, very sobering. That's why I try to skip passages like that. I don't like to teach things like that. I don't even like to read it. So let's understand what persecution is. The word persecute, the verb, comes from the Greek dioko. And it literally means to pursue, to chase down, to follow hard, to try to capture for oneself. Now if you look at that verb by itself, it can be used positively. In the Old Testament, you'll find examples like in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 20, it says, you shall follow what is altogether just. In other words, chase after, pursue, follow hard after what is righteous and what is just. And then you will inherit the land. Proverbs 15 verse 9. But God loves him who follows 
righteousness. Who pursues righteousness. Hosea chapter 6 verse 3. Let us pursue, let us chase after the knowledge of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1. Pursue love. Pursue, chase after, follow hard. Go get it. Philippians 3, 12 to 14, very famous. Paul says, I press on. I have not attained it yet, but I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to chase it down. I'm going to follow so hard. I'm going to capture and lay hold of what Jesus Christ has laid hold for me. I press on toward the goal. Same word. In the last two Beatitudes, we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all people. Pursue holiness. So this one verb can be used positively and it has been used in the Bible to denote that type of good, positive pursuit that we should be engaged in. But it is also used negatively and when it is applied in that way, dioko is used to denote persecution. In other words, if you want to persecute someone, you will pursue this person. You will chase this guy down. And that's what they did with Jesus, right? And later on, all the disciples and all the apostles. This is what they would do. They would chase Jesus. Wherever Jesus was, they would follow Him, not because they believed in Him, but they were going to take Him down. They were going to catch Him and they would do bad things to Him. Now, Paul in particular, the example is very, very clear. Paul, before his own conversion, he was chasing and pursuing the Christians, not just in Jerusalem, but even to foreign cities. So once you understand dioko, that word can be used negatively, and that's what we are studying in this session, but it can also be used positively. And so ask yourself, should you be pursuing something? Yes, you should. But it's because you are pursuing something that the pursuer now becomes the pursued. Think about that. What are the forms of persecution? We can see from the wording of Jesus, it can come through verbal abuse. There can be false accusations. They can also result in threats whether is it verbally or physically. Let's look at some examples of these. You know, Jesus says, you know, rejoice when people revile, reproach that comes against you, when they insult you. Sometimes we can attract verbal abuse when we seek to live rightly for Jesus. So if you take a stand, a Christian stand, Someone can call you names. They can look at you and say, Oh, you are so holy. They mean it negatively. Why are you so stupid? Oh, only weak people believe in God. Okay, those are very, very minor examples of, of persecution. Today, if you stand by the ways of God and you say, I believe this is the only way and there's no other way, they look at you and they call you a bigot. So, oh, no, we will not compromise. Oh, you are intolerant. 
It's happening all over the place today. Jesus is the only way. He is the truth and He's the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. Oh, you Christians are arrogant. Who gives you the right to be able to say that? You take a decision because of your Christian belief. And I've shared this before that, you know, sometimes in the, in the church, they look at us, my family, and we are a large family, and we, we homeschool. And some will look at us and say, wow, you know, you are very brave. And then behind your back, they might be saying, actually, they're very stupid. Or they say, oh, you are a man of great faith. But then at the same time, I've heard some other people whisper behind our backs of large families to say, oh, actually, they're very irresponsible. See, when you take a stand for Jesus, there's no guarantee how people can respond to you or against you. And get ready, friends. It may not only be from the outside. Sometimes you get friendly fire. Serene, my wife, is a stay-at-home mother. And when we were featured in a newspaper article, whilst we received encouraging remarks from Christians all over the place, and they say, you know, what a great testimony. We saw an alternative forum site, and they posted very, very rude remarks. So what's a graduate mother doing staying at home? Responsible? No, she's just a lazy woman, so she doesn't have to work. Oh, husband's a pastor. Of course what? The flock is stupid. They give him money. See, these are verbal abuses, insults. Verbal persecution can come against us also when we trust God and we declare our faith in Him and sometimes things don't go well with us and they look at you and they say, so where is your God now? If God is real, why is there so much suffering in all over the world? How come bombs are going all over the place? You know, children are dying. Where is your God if you believe in God and you really trust Him, how come such a good God can leave you in such a predicament? You see this? Those verbal abuses, I believe, we may have received every now and again. And with the internet, I believe you know, it's, it's, it gets more. Sometimes we get called narrow-minded. We get called old-fashioned. Today, they look at you and say that you are not progressive. With social media, you get cyberbullying of a different sort. And sometimes we get email threats against a person or a family if we would take a stand on social media. We can receive false accusations, and we know our Lord Jesus received that, that when they wanted to take Him down so badly, they were willing to just pull people up and, and, and be a false witness to hurl things at Jesus. Stephen, the very first one that was martyred, same thing. They pulled up false witnesses to give false accounts. So how do we, what kind of examples can we have today? Someone can gossip about you. They can slander. They can malign you. They can assassinate your character. And they can pass false reports and write wrong articles about you. And today with the internet, anything is possible. Of course, if that's not enough, they will move on to physical threats. They can hack your website now. And if you think, oh, that's nothing, you know, they, it's not physical enough. As long as they touch something that you have worked hard over time and invested effort and money and things in, you're going to feel it. It's going to come that close to you. 
They can deface your Facebook page or something like that. Email threats, as I've shared, certain pastors have in our nation, right? When they stood up for certain issues, they get death threats, not just email threats, death threats against themselves and against their family. In days of old and even today in other countries, the world over, damage to property, damage to belongings. We read more recently that the churches in China, they have had to remove all their crosses. In the United States, you know that if you don't perform a same-sex wedding, you might be sued, you may lose your license, you might even be imprisoned. If you don't bake a wedding cake for someone from the alternate community, you risk your business going under because they desire to close you down totally, entirely. It's not just about cake. Christians being singled out for physical violence, imprisonment. Christian women, they are subjected to rape, attacks of all sorts, torture. And of course, today we read about burning of churches, bombing incidents, and of course, death, the most bizarre. We've been seeing so many beheading cases by ISIS and other radical groups. So can you see, persecution can come in different forms, in different shapes, in different ways. When I read of these things and these reports, like I tell you, it, it should help us get a right perspective of what suffering the Bible talks about. I'm not minimizing, I'm not belittling the kind of problems you and I, we go through and we do suffer in some way. But when I read about persecution, the way the Bible talks about persecution, it makes me rethink how I approach the inconveniences that I face in my life. But I see all this, there's one objective. Why do, why do these guys want to persecute the Christians? They have one objective. They want you to lose. They want you to lose. All these things, they want you to lose face. They want you to lose family. They want you to lose friends, to be ostracized, so that if you take a certain stand, your friends say, oh, you are no fun. We're not going to invite you anymore. Or when they're having a, a laughing, a joke among themselves, and when you step in, everyone sort of just goes quiet. Shh, shh, shh. Here comes the saint. They want you to lose finance, freedom, faith. They want you to lose the fight. You will lose property. You want you to lose your possessions. And when these things are all coming against you, you lose purpose. You lose the perspective. They want you to lose dignity. Then you begin to question your identity. Today, they are coming against our rights so that you will lose your voice. And as you lose all these things, you will lose your confidence. And once you lose your confidence, you lose hope and you lose life. This is the objective of the enemy when persecution is used against the people of God. It's all about wanting us and to make Christians lose. But the kingdom is upside down. The kingdom is upside down. And that's the craziest thing. Because in losing, Jesus says, we win. 
the more we lose, the more we win. Now, this is crazy. I'm still trying to get my mind around this. The more we lose, the more we win. Jesus says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, if you lose that life, you're going to win something far greater than you can even understand. I told you, some messages you preach from experience. Others, I have to preach by faith. Amen? Because I will be honest, I can't stand here in front of you as much as I'm convinced that Scripture is right. I'll be laughing to say that I've come to that level to really understand if someone would hurl something at my face today, that I would respond in the correct manner. But we stand upon the Word of God that if He says, when we lose, that's when we win. Why does persecution happen? What's the cause of persecution? Number one, because of people. There are going to be people in this world. And as long as there are people who don't know Jesus, as long as there are people who belong to the kingdom of darkness, living unrighteous lives, persecution will be present. Jesus says, when they revile you, when they, men, persecute you, in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, which is a parallel passage, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. Now let's get one thing correct first. We know Satan is the one that's behind all these things. He is the accuser of the brethren. That's what it says in Revelations chapter 12 and verse 10. But you see, he capitalizes and he uses the sinfulness and the weakness of men as his instruments and his agents of persecution. So when people come against you, it is not the person per se, but they can be instigated by, or inspired if you really want to use that word, by the accuser of the brethren. By themselves, Men love to keep loving what they love. Let me just say that once again. Men love to keep loving what they love. And so as believers of the Lord, understanding His kingdom and what is about to come, when you tell them not to love the things of the world, and not to love themselves, and not to love money, and not to love pleasure, they hate to hear that. They don't want to hear that. And the only way that they can respond is that they will justify themselves. And as they justify themselves to keep themselves correct on that right level, or so they think, what do they need to do? They have to put you down. They have to prove that you are wrong so that they can prove that they are right. Let's take the Pharisees as an example. There's a passage in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus was talking about money and God. You can't worship mammon and you can't worship God. And he was really talking about the Pharisees because they loved money. So in verse 14 it says, The Pharisees loved money, so they derided and they scoffed at Jesus when he exposed that. See, when you declare a truth, 
it exposes the lie. When you declare a position of the Lord, it declares a position of men. And when they don't like that, they will deride you, they'll scoff at you, and they didn't stop there. They pursued Jesus to the cross. Because men love to love what they love. Give you another example. People love false doctrines. I mean, you would think, oh, wait, hang on, we are people of the truth. Why would we like false doctrine? No, you like them because it sounds nice. That's what the Bible says. That in the last days, we will heap up for ourselves teachers that we favor. We don't care who these guides are as long as they tell me what I like to hear. And that's why when you talk to some people about false teaching, they don't want to listen to you. In fact, they get very upset with you. They are very antagonistic towards you. And they would actually tear you down. Men love the darkness. That's what it says in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so if you come bearing light, they don't like that. They want to snuff out that light. See, men love to keep loving what they love. So persecution happens because there are people like that. Jesus says, blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So we've already exposed that people are unrighteous. Those who do not know Jesus and His kingdom, they are unrighteous. This would be the flip side that when you want to stand and live for righteousness, I challenge you, try doing that and see where that gets you. As we've already said, your righteousness will expose their unrighteousness. And I love this one verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of all things not yet seen, he moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Do you think Noah was persecuted in his days? In Genesis chapter 6, all those thousands of years back, do you think Noah was persecuted? I believe so. I mean, quite apart from the fact that he was trying to build a boat you know, up on the mountains. And someone would probably come and ridicule him. Quite apart from the fact that he was building a boat for more than a few years. Can you imagine the kind of taunting, the kind of ridiculing? But I believe that Noah was ridiculed not because he was building a boat. You build a boat today, you'll be fine. Noah was persecuted because he believed in what God said about judgment against unrighteousness. And in his building of that boat, it was a bold declaration, not just in, by action, but I believe by word also. Not only in deed, but also by word, because in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah was recorded to be a preacher of righteousness. 
It's not about him having a hobby and you know building a boat to go sailing. It's about him building a boat because God says this boat will save you from the unrighteousness. And he declares to the people, this boat is a righteous vehicle. And they looked at him and they said, you are crazy, you are mad. And they ridiculed him. See, your righteousness will reveal someone else's unrighteousness. Is this correct? Have you tried witnessing, sharing the gospel with someone else? And you say, in Christ, you know, we become righteous so we can be with God. And they refuse to receive that, right? They refuse to accept that. And so they hit below the belt. Ah, you look at all the Christians, are so terrible. Live like that. Call yourself Christians. They will not tell me about righteousness. Nah. Right? They, they would whack you because of that, right? Because they refuse to accept that righteousness comes by faith and by faith alone. Persecution happens for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake. As long as you bear the name of Jesus, as long as you carry His title as Christians, as long as you're moving about kingdom assignments, friends, we are prime candidates for persecution. No one, no one is exempted from this privilege and this honor. Today, we don't understand disciples. In the old days, disciples are prepared to go through what the master would have to go through. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours too. He put it plain and simple. You are my disciples. Whatever they do to me, they would most likely do to you. Why do you think Peter was so terrified when Jesus was arrested? Why do you think that when Jesus was crucified, all the disciples, except John, fled the scene? Because they would be next. The chances were very high. And can I give you some news? You can't get out of it by saying, Oh no, I'm just a believer. I'm not a disciple. When someone comes through this door with bombs strapped around him, with an AK-47, with a parang, you cannot say, Chop, ah, I believer, ne. I didn't go as disciple class. The disciple, ne, ne, that one. Do you think they bother? See, all of us are disciples. You bear the name of Jesus. You live for Jesus. We are candidates for all kinds of persecution. You follow Jesus, you get the whole deal. You don't pick and choose. And we need to be prepared for that eventuality. Another title of Jesus is the King of Righteousness. So in Jesus declaring that you are, that you, as you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and as you are persecuted for my sake, what he's really saying is, same. Jesus is righteousness. Righteousness is Jesus. If you live for Jesus, you live for righteousness. Amen? You can't divorce these two terms. 
So if we are ready and prepared to cry and shout in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. We are trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. We are workers of righteousness. Then we have righteousness written all over us because we are hidden in His righteousness. Get ready for persecution. Persecution happens because of Jesus. And this is what you must remember and I must remember because when it happens, don't take it personally. I know it's tough. They are not whacking us. They are whacking Jesus. Can you remember this? When someone shouts at you, hurls things at you, if your family members want to throw us out or throw you out you know, or, or say something bad about your religion or something like that, it's not against you. Don't take it personally. It's against Jesus. Remember Samuel went out to God and said, God, the people are asking for a king. And God told Samuel, it's okay. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So don't feel so bad. Sometimes we take it personally, you understand? Oh, it's me, they're persecuting. No, it's Jesus. We belong to Jesus and that's why they want to persecute us because they want to persecute Jesus. When Saul had that mandate to, to take out the Christians in Damascus and he was on the way there and, and Jesus meets him there, what was that phrase, that question that was asked? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You take it out, my people, you deal with me. Have you heard the mafia talk? You touch him, I touch you. Right? Huh? You kill him, I kill you. That's the God Father. We have Father God. Amen. We are not just suffering for Jesus. We are also suffering with Jesus. That's why Paul says that I, I, I long to have that knowledge of that resurrection with Christ, but also the fellowship of His suffering. It's part of the deal, guys. But as you look at this, please be careful of self-imposed or self-imagined persecution. Okay, because we are very prone to that. Jesus is not asking you to have a, oh, woe is me, I'm, I'm suffering for you, you know, everybody is against me, nobody likes me. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. You have to stop thinking that you're the only one who's living righteously. Now that's very easy to do, huh? to fall into that trap. My pastor doesn't understand me. My cell leader doesn't understand me. The whole church doesn't understand me. I alone, I'm left. Okay, so don't inflict that upon yourself. We have enough trouble around this world. You don't need more for yourself. Second thing, you have to discern whether it's a consequence of our own disobedience or a sinful act. I mean, if you, if you do something wrong, and there's a consequence that comes with it, learn fast. Repent. Confess. Don't do it again. The next thing is, learn how to accept truth when truth is spoken, and hopefully in love. Persecution is about false witnesses coming against you, false accusation. But if truth is spoken, if brothers and sisters come to you or even a non-believer comes to you and gives you constructive feedback, that's not 
persecution. <laughs> that's not reproach. That's a blessing. And it would do us well to learn it. All right, so don't get persecution wrong and you think the whole world is against you. That would be the wrong way to approach this. So having understood a little bit more what persecution is, the, the forms of persecution, the causes of persecution, how we are to respond to persecution in the correct manner, let's quickly move on to the blessing, shall we? Everyone is looking a little bit too serious now. So let's go to the blessedness part. Come on, say hallelujah. Yeah, okay. I like this part. The blessedness of the persecuted, both now and later. Jesus says, blessed are those, or are you, if you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, and also when people come against you and revile and speak things against you for my sake. And he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, right, later. But first he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a promise that comes immediately after that. If you are persecuted, you are blessed because for yours is, not will be, is. It's a present reality. Now, it's hard to accept that. It's hard to even believe that sometimes. But it is a present reality in the lives of those who are persecuted because these are truly living as kingdom subjects. The kingdom of heaven is real. It is there for them. And it is theirs. Who else will live as kingdom subjects other than those who are ruled and reigned by the king? And here we see three things that show proof that the kingdom of heaven is real. Number one, persecution proves our godliness. We have already explored 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, right? that says that if you desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. Your godliness begins to be clear. People begin to see it. Opposition comes to you and it proves that your conduct is different from the rest of the world. You begin to stick out a little bit more than someone else. In the name of relevance, we have to ask ourselves today, in the name of relevance, have we become so similar to the world that it's hard to tell one from the other? Have we become so afraid of opposition and so afraid of losing, from a church context, losing people, that we would tweak the ways of the kingdom to avoid offending the people? Are we living godly lives? Is our godliness showing? Because the Bible tells us, pursue godliness. Pursue, dioko. Pursue godliness. And you see whether people will pursue you or not. Not necessarily positively. The second evidence of the kingdom of heaven is that the grace of the king is present for you. Great grace is poured out in times of suffering, in times of weakness, in times of persecution. You know, I hear all over again, all over in the church that we pray, oh Lord, we want to be the, the church in X. Really? We want to be like the church in X. 
Did you read the part about persecution? Do you read the part about flogging and imprisonment? Hands up all those who want to be the church in Acts. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. Great grace was upon them all because they were going through great persecution. It's really odd, you know, because today's teaching, I keep hearing people tell me, great grace will keep you from all trouble. My Bible doesn't say that. Something is not correct today. Paul says, I'm struggling with this weakness, this infirmity, this thorn in my flesh, in my side. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. You see? The grace is there when we need it. I'm not saying there's there's no general grace for all of us, common grace that we receive at this point in time. You understand? But when you go through a difficult time, when things come against you, I don't think we can ever prepare for that adequately. Amen? There has to be a supernatural grace that comes. Because when we go through persecution, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And grace is there. The evidence and the proof of the kingdom and righteous living for the Lord is that the glory of the King rests on us. And this glory affirms us for the present and it keeps us for the future. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Sounds like a beatitude, right? For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. For their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Now, don't get me wrong again. I'm not saying that we can't have the glory of God apart from this. But in this verse, in this passage, is it not true that when persecution happens, there is a greater glory that we can even understand? The greater the suffering, the greater the glory. That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, Jesus says that, or Paul says that, don't you know you are co-heirs with Christ and you will be glorified with Him even as you suffer with Him. Because it is through that suffering that there will be that weight of glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, Therefore do not lose heart, Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Then he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now this is Paul. Have you read the account of Paul? Do you know how much affliction he endured? And yet he says, for all that I've gone through and am going through or will go through, our light affliction, light, light little bit, for a moment. It is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You want a glory? Then we have to learn to understand what this persecution and what suffering is all about. The blessedness of the persecuted. Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. One of the most difficult verses to underline. 
in a parallel Luke chapter 6, verse 23, Jesus says, Rejoice in that day. That means when persecution comes against you, when opposition comes against you, and do this. Leap for joy. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. I look at this and it's like, Lord, how? You better help me. How do we consider it all joy when various trials, things come against us? And the Lord led me to some of these passages where first we must have the joy of participation. Remember when Peter and the rest of the apostles, they were arrested and after that they were beaten and then they were released in Acts chapter 6. It was recorded that they they went out and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Well, it takes a certain maturity, a certain grace to be able to do that, right? Someone comes to you and says, you Christian, good. Spits you in your face. And you go around and say, thank you Lord, hallelujah, I got spat at for your sake. Jump, jump, hop, skip. But you are participating in the work of the kingdom, amen? You are working together with the king and there's a joy that you have that privilege and honor and to take some flag for him. Wow. We have the joy of perfection because we must remember the purpose of these things if it doesn't take our life. Like they say, you know, what doesn't kill you will strengthen you, right? You will learn something from it. God allows these things to test the genuineness of our faith and to refine us and to perfect us. And we may appear to be losing at that point in time, but in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says that it will have its perfect work. You will not be losing anything. You won't be lacking anything. You will be complete. Oh, how we need to remember this, right, when we're going through a very difficult moment. And especially if someone wants to take our our property or family or wants to do things to us. May we have that grace. But we must also have the joy of expectation. And here we look at the prime example of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says that for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. This line has stuck with me for a long time, ever since I realized this. For the joy set where? Before Him, endured the cross. Now the cross was not joyful. But He was looking at the joy that was set before Him, that after that, He despised the shame of the cross that now He sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's why we have to look at this and understand what Jesus really meant when He says, look, yours is the kingdom of heaven if someone comes against you. You can rejoice, be exceedingly glad because you get to participate in the work of the kingdom. You get to have its refining and perfecting work. And in time, you're going to really rejoice because of the joy that is set before you. But I like this last line. For great is your reward in heaven. For great is your reward in heaven. Oh, I made this beautiful discovery this, this week. Can I share it with you? 
I found out that there are rewards and there are great rewards. There are two categories of rewards. There are rewards and there are great rewards. Those who have faith in God, right? If you diligently seek Him, He's a rewarder of such people. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Matthew chapter 6, later on we will learn that if we do things in quiet, that we do not make a big show out of it, the Father rewards us. If we receive one another, help someone else in need for the sake of Jesus Christ, there will be rewards. If we build upon the foundation of Christ on, on that final day, you'll be tested by fire. Our works will be rewarded. You see, you must know your assignment. If we preach the gospel willingly, without charge, we will be rewarded. If we have works of righteousness, we will be rewarded. But they are great rewards. The word great is only attached to those who bear the reproach of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, Moses chose to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. If we are reproached, Jesus says, great is your reward. And I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer because he was given an opportunity in World War II to flee Germany so that he can be saved and he can preach another sermon. But he chose to stay with his people. Was arrested, put in a Nazi concentration camp, later on was executed, and a few days later, the war was over. If we hold fast our confidence in Christ, in the face of persecution and loss, Hebrews 10 verse 35 says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. And don't just look at that as, oh, I'm confident in Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. It's the context you have to see. Their property was being confiscated. Their things were being taken away. They were losing everything left, right and center. And they held on to the confidence they had in Jesus Christ. They will receive a great reward. Those who are beheaded, it says that they will form a part of the first resurrection. They will live and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Revelations chapter 20, verse 4. Can I confess something to you? In my earlier days, younger, you know, coming into the ministry, I will always declare, oh, I'm going to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Now, some of you might still be declaring that. And I will just read this verse and I will just gloss over it because in my mind, I was just going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. But if you look at this passage, there's a qualifier. It says, These were the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and to the Word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they lived and reigned for a thousand years. Did I disappoint anyone tonight? Am I reading scripture, friends? I'm not saying you won't be beheaded. You can still have this. Who knows whether we will live in that generation that will have the mark of the beast. Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, 
not just about the reward because he says now there's a qualifier, there's, there's something that you identified with or a group of people that you identified with. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, I like this one. If you take the hit for Jesus, you are counted amongst the prophets of great. Ooh. Isn't that interesting? You look at Isaiah, sawn in two. You look at Elijah, persecuted, but at least he went up in a whirlwind. You look at Elijah, you look at other prophets, you know. I mean, they were wrecked for God. You join the ranks of these prophets. You can, you can rub shoulders with these big guys. That's why he says rejoice. Maybe you got to sit next to Isaiah. Who knows? That's what being a prophet means. Today, who changed the rules? All New Testament prophets will have to be encouraging. Prophets must say nice things. Who changed the rules? Prophets were always declaring the righteousness of God. Can they encourage you to be righteous? Yes. Can they comfort you with righteousness? Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. We cannot say bad things. We have to build up the church. Hello, what is the church built on? Righteousness. Not flaky platitudes. If you're truly moving in the prophetic, get ready for persecution. Great is your reward. We've got to hang out with the prophets, guys. Let me conclude. I've already mentioned this earlier. I don't stand before you to declare that I know and understand all about persecution. All I can pray is that I have declared the scripture as it is to be declared. And that it would help us understand more deeply and prepare us if or when persecution comes against us. If you look at the Old Testament to the New Testament, right through church history today, persecution continues to be a very real and present danger for the church of Jesus Christ. The battle rages on because the enemy knows his time is short. I want to recommend a couple of resources to you. This is a very old book, a classic. You can pick this up on the internet. I think they have PDF versions. You can buy it from the bookshops. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it chronicles and it records the early church, the martyrs, how they lived for Jesus and how they were persecuted and crucified and died for Jesus. That's one. Another website you can go to, this is Open Doors. And the website is opendoors.org. There's a map that shows you the most persecuted places or the most difficult places to be Christians. And they rank it and intercessors, you can pray. Uh, it's called the World Watch List. They actually have a ranking to actually let you know. Um, the other one is called The Voice of the Martyrs. And you can find this in persecution.com. Interestingly, if you look under the prayer watch, they have specific prayer requests for different people in different countries um, so that you can lift up these brothers and sisters also in prayer. So the question is, what gave all these and what continues to give all these the boldness and the courage to look death in the eyes and not buckle? Truly, is it not the kingdom of heaven with them? Is it not, is it not a relationship with Jesus, a true witness of his resurrection and his life? And today, we know Jesus lives 
and we live also. And I pray that He will help us to understand this. But let's be clear that we don't have to look for trouble and persecution. If we are living right, trouble and persecution will look for us. Okay? We may not suffer like these others in other countries, but we can face other oppositions right here in our home ground. Let's live for Jesus. Let's learn from all these. And let's ask this question. Do we need to lose to win? And maybe some of us need to lose some things first. It doesn't have to be lives yet. There are quite a lot of things we need to shed so that we can be postured to win. Let me conclude with this note that is found on the desk of an African martyr. I came across this article when I was doing my theological studies and it has stayed with me. I've posted it also on my website. Once in a while, I I, I know I forget about it and then it comes up again. But let me read this to you and I hope that this will inspire you to declare the same. The note found on the desk of an African martyr. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience, am lifted up by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till all I know, and work until He stops me. And when He comes for His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the blood of the martyrs. We thank You for brothers and sisters who have gone before all of us, who have laid a foundation that is strong. The foundation is laid upon the the firm foundation first of Jesus Christ and His blood. But upon that, so much more blood has been spilled through the sanctuaries. And Lord, through this week as I've prepared this, and even this evening, we come together, Lord, to come and, and to say, Lord, forgive us, Lord. In the times where we have winched, we have complained, we have grumbled, And we have just murmured because of the inconveniences that we have faced in our lives and in our journeys. Forgive us, Lord. But if we have faced opposition from family or from friends or even from church or from other quarters, Lord, I pray, grace us, Lord, with your strength, with your love, with your glory, so that we can continue to grow and to mature 
and to be prepared for whatever lies before us. And so we pray even for our brothers and our sisters all over the world who are suffering in, in such greater dimensions than us here in Singapore. Will you be with them? Will you bless them? Will you watch over them, provide for them, secure them, Lord, strengthen them, O Lord? And we know, Lord, that as one part of the body suffers, the rest would also ache. And so as we close this evening, may we carry this and may we learn to declare as the apostles did. We would rejoice that you would count us worthy to suffer for you. And so we thank you and we bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.